Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this episode, I speak to Stephen Murta, also known as The Exhibition Guy. It's a really fascinating talk because not only is Stephen a speaker, but he's also someone who helps exhibitors understand how to make the most of the conferences that they attend. It's a really great perspective because it takes us outside our comfort zone as speakers. We also talk about the way events are going to change, the way that virtual and in-person events will have to combine together to become the future hybrid events of tomorrow. Listen and enjoy. Stephen, it's great to have you here today on the Fireside of Box Gig podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a, it's a real pleasure. I know we've spoken through uh, social media and stuff like that, but it's great to be here. It's great to actually have a conversation, although it's not face-to-face. Well, there are no face-to-face conversations in uh, <laughs> these days, I'm afraid. No, no, not the moment. You do speak, but speaking isn't your primary thing. You're here to provide us with a little bit of wider perspective on... The experiences of exhibitors and sponsors when it comes to conferences. Yeah. And maybe before we start talking about things that have happened recently with the virus and all that sort of stuff, let's go back in time, back to the future, back to 2019. No, no, it's really, yeah, absolutely. My kind of experience as a speaker when it comes to exhibiting is as part of a team that gets sent to a conference. Yeah. So, what would your advice be to speakers, first of all, that are part of a team that is doing that type of activity. I'm in the pre-event speaking piece where I, I train exhibitors and conference speakers like yourself. And, and I suppose for me, it's looking at the audience because very often event organizers would just get this wonderful speaker in and it'd be a really well-known name and stuff like that. And, and that's great. But the reality is you're not playing to your audience. So for me as a speaker or, or for potential speakers at events, it's all about knowing the audience. And I mean, knowing the specific audience who are going to be there. And what are their drivers for going to the event in the first place? So it's not, because I, I find Richard, being honest, go to a lot of conferences. They'll have like Joe Schmidt or they'll have somebody famous. And that's brilliant. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, nothing against that. But it's not on topic. Now, with COVID, and I, I'm, I'm reluctant to use that word, but with, and there is a reason why I'm using it for speakers. Post-COVID, when it's going to get more challenging for us in the events world to bring people to events, visitors and exhibitors, it's going to be all about content. So it's going to be really important that the speakers we get are really on point and they're going to know their topic, they're going to know their industry and they're going to be people that they're going to drive audiences that wouldn't have come to events before because that's going to be really important because our numbers in exhibition and events terms are going to be down. What we're trading on right now is actually bringing back visitors, not in quantity, but actually quality. So it's good numbers of people coming to trade shows, good quality people are talking about, and they're coming for content. They're not coming to see lovely exhibition stands, they're coming for the content. 
So the speaker's remit is going to become even more important post-COVID. Speakers have become more important. Absolutely, 100%. I, they, they absolutely have. I mean, if you even take the virtual platforms or, or indeed the live platforms, the ultimate reason why visitors are going to, to, event, to events now, and I say when I call events, I'm talking conferences and exhibitions, it's for the content. And the content is not 40 square meters of exhibition space. The content is Richard talking about something brilliant in the tech space or, or whoever the speaker is. That's the draw now, and that's going to become even more important um, into the future with events. Which is both um, cool for speakers, but also kind of frightening. <laughs> we have to up our game. You do. You absolutely, I mean, I, to be fair, you do. You're absolutely right. It's great in one respect. Yeah, of course it is. But and there, be, there should be a bigger demand for quality speakers. But it is going to put more pressure on the speakers. But is that a bad thing? I don't think it is. Because if you're bringing in the right speaker, I mean, like I, I like to think of myself as somebody who knows this industry very, very well. And if I'm asked to speak in exhibitions, I can add lip very easily and be very passionate about what I do because I know and understand my industry. I mean, I've been asked to open events and exhibitions because people know that I'll come along and give the passion piece about why you should exhibit at trade shows. So I think speakers have that responsibility, but they also have an opportunity. And I just did a video on LinkedIn about this only, um, in fact, it's going live tomorrow, about passion in business and how passion drives, drives so much more than product knowledge and all the other things. And that's what you need to be as a speaker. Yeah, it's important to remember, uh, I mean, especially since a lot of people at the moment are, are kind of necessarily focused on plain old survival, but you shouldn't lose a sight of the passion, should you? I mean, the reason we're here. No, you see, uh, you, 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 must have, you must have been listening to my video on the slide or something, because it, it, like, the video I just did, I only did it half an hour ago, so I'm going to up tomorrow, is exactly about this. It's, yes, things are going to be tougher post-COVID. And again, I don't want to keep going on about that, but it's the reference point I'm getting at, is that we need to be passionate about our business. If you're not passionate about your business, how can you expect your client to be passionate about your business? And how can you get through the tough times, right? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking about LinkedIn, you have a yeah. you're you have an awesome profile. You're called like the exhibition guy. How did that happen? Yeah, it's, it was funny because when I said, I mean, I, long story short, I, I'm in exhibitions about 25 years, but I sold exhibitions for many, many years, and, and I just got I, I got frustrated seeing exhibitors not getting returns from trade shows, and I had a training background anyway from Yellow Pages and all the other careers I was involved in. And I said, it's got to be a better way. So what happened was, I looked at my business and said, every time I ring up a company and said to book an exhibition, the receptionist will put her hand over the phone and she'd say to whoever I'm looking to speak to, the exhibition guy, that exhibition guy's on the phone again. <laughs> so that's where the name came from. <laughs> I love it. And it just kind of stuck. And, and, and actually, it's funny because my brand on LinkedIn is, is obviously the exhibition guy. I mean, I go to events and conferences um, all over the world and people tap me on the shoulder and they don't even know my first name. They just know me as the exhibition guy. So it's, it's kind of stuck, but it, it's, it's really resonates with me, Richard, because it's exactly who I am. It's exactly what I'm passionate about. Okay, so your, your name is Stephen. Let's just be clear on that one. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so jealous, right? You've got positioning, you've got branding, you've got recognition. It's, you know, it does exactly what it says in the tin. Mm. And that's a classic example of listening to customers. I think you have to, because... To be honest, I've, I've, I've worked long and hard to establish some form of credibility in my space, even though I'm 25 years doing it. People, I, you would assume people know me, but when you go out on your own, 
into a smaller business and you haven't worked with a big company. You're just you're just one person now. And I, I worked really, really hard to establish that credibility through content, through what I do for a living, and through the fact that I'm very, very niche. That's very good and it's very bad in, in the other way. But I've established a fairly decent brand with 16,500 connections to LinkedIn. And, and again, it's not about the number. But I mean, I'll give you a prime example. I, I, I do some work in India and I was talking to one of the big organizers in India recently and on the, on the Zoom call. And he said, you do realize you're really famous here. I said, what are you talking about? He said, everybody knows you in India. Wow. I said, how do you mean? He said, because your content is just... It's going. It's like wildfire going through the exhibition industry in India. Everyone's looking at you, going, "This guy." And next, you call me a guru. I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> but my point is, I suppose where where it comes from is, I think as people see what I do online through say LinkedIn as an example, um, they see I'm incredibly passionate about what. I mean, I did a video the other day which 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 got um, a lot of views on my my opinion of virtual versus live events. Yeah. And we'll come back to that, right? Yeah, no, definitely, because it is where coming back to and it, and it got about 10 or 15,000 views. I can't remember how many views. We've got a lot of views anyway. I like a lot of comments about it. And a lot of people are talking to me about it saying, I really, really agree with you. And how come you're so um, open about how you feel? I said, it's not a question of being open. It's a question of being honest. This is what I believe. I'm only one person, by the way. But I vehemently believe that virtual is not the answer. I'm not saying it's not part of the solution. And for me, what resonated with people was, you're really honest, you're not afraid to speak your mind. And I'm not. I'm too old to worry about not speaking my mind because I believe in what I do. And that's where the passion comes from. Let's get into specifics, right? Because we're <laughs> this podcast, we are trying to understand all aspects of speaking and conferences and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. What do you actually do for clients? It's a great question. It's a great question. And it's, it's one of the challenges. And, and, and it's a very fair point because the exhibition guy, I would think that assumes everyone knows what to do, but they don't. And that's perfectly understandable. Do you sell exhibitions? Do you go to exhibitions? What do you do? What, what I do is I work with, I suppose, two sectors. I work with exhibition organizers. And so guys who are running conferences and exhibitions, and I work with them on strategy. Okay. So if they have an event that's not selling very well, we look and we get in under the under the bonnet of the exhibition and see how we can make it a better event. This for engagement, then more exhibitors, more feature areas. So I work on the strategy piece with the organizer. The second thing I do with organizers is I work with organizers, sales teams, ex- training them how to actually sell exhibitions. Right. And what I do there is I work with them on understanding the mindset of an exhibitor because a business person has loads of options to promote their business. They go digital and print, all the different radio, all different options. So when we as exhibition salespeople ring the clients up, we're just another form of advertising platform, whatever you want to describe. Of course, yeah, what I do absolutely. Is, yeah, that's exactly what we are. Now, what I, I need I need salespeople to understand is we are not selling that. We're selling a much bigger opportunity. Exhibitions are the only place where you can achieve multiple objectives in one place at one time. So there's nine key things you can achieve exhibiting on a show that you can't achieve through other mediums now all in one place at one time. So it's about training salespeople how to sell the opportunity, but more equally as importantly, selling the opportunity in such a way as they don't oversell to their clients, uh, exhibitors, who think they're only get put in 5,000 euro and get 5 million back. It's not that simple. I, mean, I wish it was, but it's not. Um, but it's about salespeople giving clients, exhibitors, people going to conferences the right advice. And that's what I do is the seven steps to exhibition success. But this piece here, which I train salespeople on, crosses over to the exhibitors. So the organizers now come to me and say, listen, we need to get closer to our exhibitors. How are we going to do that? I said, well, the biggest issue you have is you go to the exhibitors once a year, you take money off them, and then you run away. Now, that doesn't work anymore because the exhibitor wants more value. So what they do is they bring me in, and I train their, their exhibitors 
to actually the seven steps to exhibition success. So how do we save it properly? Okay, so you're offering the service. The organizer offers the service through you so that the exhibitor, people on the yeah. stand, people yeah. doing the rota and doing the product demos or whatever are more effective. Exactly, because if I can give you a, give you a reference point to that, Richard, um, in our world, in the exhibition world, we are losing 40 to 50% of our, our exhibitors each year. And that's not a sign of or a representation of a bad show. That's a sign of representation of every show. Um, now, there's lots of reasons for that. But what I'm saying is the average business loses about 17 to 20% of their clients every year. And we're losing 40 to 50. There's something wrong it's, there. It's the sticker shock, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've as a business owner, I've had this myself, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'll, let me tell you a story, right? We, yeah. we were trying to sell to enterprise customers, IT services to enterprise customers. And we went to this uh, conference in Austin, Texas. Lovely spot. Yeah. And we spent 45,000 euros on the whole thing, right? Taught it all up afterwards the travel, all yeah. the, you know, the whole shebang, the band, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? easy, it's easy, easy to spend money at conferences. No, of course it is. And the bloody thing turned out to be a technology conference. There were no decision makers, it was all developers. That's just, yeah. I mean, it was lovely. And of course, it happened because, uh, you know, two of, two of our, our developers ended up getting speaking spots there, slots there. And the marketing team went, well, hey, great, we've two slots. Yeah. You know, let's all pile onto this conference. Uh, 45K down the train. Yeah, but that's the frustrating piece, you see. And, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why the Seven Steps Exhibition Success has been so successful because in isolation, uh, ex- ex- exhibiting is probably the most expensive form of advertising you're going to do if you take if you just take it as money out. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, because you've got all, like, all the costs, as you just described, 45 grand there. Um, you could take a lot of mag- ads and trade magazines and stuff for that 45 grand. Take it in isolation. But if you do it properly, it should be the most effective platform you have because your, your multiplier in exhibition terms over a 12-month period should be somewhere in the region of 5 to 6x oh, yeah. return. It should be. Now, what's happening is exhibitors are rocking up to trade shows. They're going, they arrive, they've done no pre-show marketing, they've done no planning, they don't haven't set any objectives, they rock up there, it's a bit of a jolly, let's go and do this show. And a lot of the time, as you say, decision makers aren't there, but but ultimately they go there without a plan. Now, the problem with that is that you go without a plan, you don't know what you're trying to achieve. And you don't achieve it because you don't know what you're trying to achieve. So therefore, you can't achieve it. It's like I say to somebody, if you set an objective, you've, it's got to be a measurable objective. And when it comes to exhibitions, you need to have three clear objectives. Three is the magic number in exhibition terms. Um, there's three key numbers in exhibiting, which I will tell you about. But the first one is three. Okay. And it's called the, it's called the principle of triskaidekaphobia. Okay, I love it. This is something I developed to make it really simple for people who are exhibiting. And I will come back to that. But, or maybe I'll, I'll start it because it, it makes sense. When you're exhibiting at the show, we're going to talk about the principles of the three, four, six principles of, exhi- of exhibiting. Now, what that is, is saying to an exhibitor, we're going to help you do better from exhibiting. First thing is you need to set three objectives, three clear objectives. Most companies set no objectives or 25 objectives. You need to set three clear objectives. That's the first thing. The second number is number four. And, and, and this is an important one from an exhibiting point of view. You've got four seconds to make an impression on an exhibition. Someone will decide within four seconds they're going to stop and understand. Yeah. So you need to make sure your stand design, your people are really engaging and they're standing, they're not sitting on the phone, sitting oh texting yeah, the, sitting the phone, yeah. and all yeah. that stuff. And that stuff is crazy. So that's the middle piece, which is the on-site piece. And the final piece, which is the number six, which brings the total number 13, which is triskaidekaphobia, is the fear of the number 13. The last number is number six. And 
In exhibition terms, this is the biggest faux pas. 81% of leads from trade shows are never followed up by the sales team. Or Which is just mad when you think, I mean, the money that goes into it. It's lunacy. It's just, I mean, I know, I know this from personal experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why does that happen? I mean, Stephen, surely companies at that scale, like we had a CRM system. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a very disciplined use of it. We still had it. But some people spend tons of money on things like Salesforce, which is super expensive. Yeah. And, you know, okay, we, you know, we, we did have a pipeline and we did kind of track it, the, the, the volumes and all that. And yet, there seemed to be this disconnect between the outcomes from an event and the sales pipeline. Why is that? What's happening? So essentially what happens is people come back from, from an exhibition. They've obviously been during the build-up for a couple of days, the show for a couple of days. And they, essentially, it's the best part of a week before they get back to the office. And what they do is they get caught up straight away in firefighting mode. They're catching up with emails, internal meetings, and things like that. And they, they have this lovely bunch of leads that they put in the shelf and say, we're going to yeah. chase that tomorrow. And invariably, they don't, they don't do it. The next day, the same thing happens. And what happens over time is, is that those leads are just shelved and shelved and shelved. And then when they do go back to them a couple of weeks later, the leads don't seem as good, for example. They haven't been chased up. And what's happened in the middle is that other exhibitors who obviously they visited have been chasing them up. And it's just, they leave it just hang and there's no commitment as to what happens next. And I see this all the time because I see companies who just get caught up in this, getting a bunch of leads, but doing nothing with them. And then what they'll do is they'll blame the organizer and say the show was, was rubbish. I didn't get any business from it. Which as a salesperson, you can go back to your boss and you're like, I got 50 leads. Yeah, exactly. But did, what, I, what I say to people is there's a six-day rule, which is the, the last number in the three, four, six principles. And the six-day rule is you need to chase up every single lead within six days. And that's the optimum amount of time. The six is at the, at the higher end. Now, point being that I'm not saying you're going to get sales over the line within six days, but you need to have that contact or the next appointment. Do you start chasing them at the conference? I mean, let's say it's a three-day conference. Do you get up an hour early on day two and start firing off emails to people from day one? No, I don't think so. I think I think you've got to put a little bit of distance between it. For me, I would be putting, I would be chasing them. If the, if you met the visitor on day one of a three-day conference, I would be emailing the first day you come back to the office because that's day four effectively. Right. You need to do each visitor within that. Six days is, is the high end. And again, I'm not suggesting for a minute because who told you I won't get a decision that quickly. It's not about the decision. It's about maintaining that contact. I mean, is this up to the sales leadership of the exhibiting organization to put this process in place? Yeah. Or does it fall in the heads of the, uh, the individual salesperson? To me, it should be a company policy, actually, because you see, the thing about it is, if you look at the percentage of exhibitors we lose and the percentage of exhibitors who don't chase a fleet, there's got to be a correlation between those numbers. And I think I'm on this thing called the Exhibition Think Tank, which is a global um, think tank for the exhibition industry for COVID. And one of the things that's coming across is how we can be more uniform, how we can educate people to exhibit better. And it's not just because that's what I do. I mean, that's what I do for a living, but that's not why. The results are, if you look at an or the biggest frustration an organizer has right now is they're not getting a retention of, of their exhibitors. So what we need to do is we need to educate the exhibitors to do better, because if they do better, they come back. If they come back, the organizer's happy, and then it's a full circle. But up to now, it's been very much, we want you to exhibit, we want to take your money, we don't really care what happens. But when we come out of this, uh, this period that we're in right now, when money is going to be tighter, people are going to be more careful how they, how they allocate their budgets, they're going to look to organizers who can add a bit more value to them. 
And this is a value add piece from, that I think I fit in quite well with because that's what I do is, is being the conduit between the organizer and the exhibitor. Because ultimately, it's in everybody's interest for the exhibitor to do well. But up to date, it's... And what is happening with this high turnover rate, which is approaching 50%? Yeah. Do exhibitors just think it's the conference? They chose the wrong conferences and next year they're going to try different ones and you know come up smelling of roses. We just find the right conference. Yeah, you know, there's a bit of that. I mean, the easiest way I, I suppose I could describe to you, let's use the figure of 40% because it's an easier figure than we use because it's somewhere between 40 and 50. But let, let's say we have a conference that has, has a thousand exhibitors. So we're losing 400 of them every year. Now, of the 400 that we lose, which is the 40%, obviously, um, half of those we were probably going to lose anyway for, for loads of different reasons. It, it could have been a conference for them. It could have been they could have achieved their objectives. They could do it every second year. And that's perfectly reasonable. But if you look at the other 200, the other 20, the other 50% of the people drop out, there are people who rock up and haven't been given the advice on how to exhibit, how to follow up leads. And I'm not saying we should handhold all the way because but we should be educating them on it. Because I speak to exhibitors and I say, what's your biggest problem with an organizer? And time and time again, it's the same thing. They say, listen, you see him once a year, he takes our money, he runs away, we see him a year later. There's nothing in the middle. Now, this is where I believe digital has got a really big part and successful part to play in our industry. How we can combine the digital piece, the virtual piece, whatever way you want to describe it, during the year to maintain that contact with exhibitors all the way through the year. So we're giving them a lot more value because otherwise we're just purely salespeople selling boxes on, on a floor plan, selling the biggest stand we can because that's what we need to do because we want to get our revenue target. We're not strategically thinking about how can we help this business? We're thinking about how can we help ourselves by selling more space. Yeah, and I'd like to bring it back to speakers. Hmm. The speakers listening to this podcast because yeah. if you're a speaker on an exhibiting team, an exhibiting team might have more than one speaker, in fact. Yeah. How do you leverage that side of it? As a speaker, how do you make things more effective? And from the exhibitor's perspective, how do you make your speakers more effective in terms of those objectives? I mean, the way I would do it is, I suppose there's two strands for this. I mean, uh, people say to me, oh, I'm great. I've got a speaker slot. I can keep mentioning our company name when I'm doing my speaking slot. And I say, well, that doesn't work. You don't do that at all. If anything, it should be more generic presentations. And I'll just jump in on there, right? Yeah. So in our system, in the Voxic software platform, yeah. organizers have, have directly asked us to, to build a little tick box, which is vendor pitch. Yeah. God help you if you submit a vendor pitch because you won't yeah. be getting the slot. Yeah, you see, this is the thing about it because, because that, that, that to me is overselling. I mean, that, that's yeah. overselling. You, know, you should be going to a conference or you should be attending a speaker because you want to hear proper content, not a sales pitch. Now, having said that, for obvious reasons, if, you've got, if, you, if you're of a joined up marketing plan, of course you want to leverage that content. And the way I would be leveraging that content is I would be, I'd be possibly live streaming it on your stand. So live streaming the actual speaking conference maybe on your stand to get more, more traffic. That would be one thing I would be putting on a loop afterwards. But I would certainly be using the speaker as, as a celebrity, for use of a better word, on your stand if the speaker is somebody who's well known. And I would be engaging people from the conference side of it to come and visit you on the stand to talk more, certainly, but not overselling it. Yeah. Because I think that's the fear. People do it's like it's like the example I always give about Dra about Dragon's Den. Um, I pitched in Dragon's Den many years ago. I remember the guy ahead of me. Wow, wow. Yeah, no, a long time ago. But I remember <laughs> the guy ahead of me, I can't remember what he was selling or what his product was. And he did his pitch anyway, and uh, 
what he did was brilliant. They were all literally about to invest, and then he kept talking. Uh, he kept talking about how good he was, and he kept talking about this. And then the dragon started to, to sniff a few things that might have been wrong in the business, and then he talked himself out of the sale, basically. I think when it comes to conference speakers, you've got to be cognizant of your audience, that it's not a sales pitch. And you know, as well as I do, Richard, we see people getting on stage at conferences who just do a glorified sales pitch. Yeah, which the audience hates, right? It's Absolutely. Boring. And just, if anything, you're not even dis- you're, you're completely disengaging both in the conference, but you're also disengaging to visit you understand because it's just a sales pitch. Yeah, it's going to be more of the same. One of, one of my favorite sales expressions or little quotes, uh, I've schooled in this by a, a board member many years ago. Yeah. Selling past the close. Selling past, yeah, selling past the close. Selling past the close, which is, you yeah. know, you've made the sales. Shut up. Yeah. Just I, shut up. <laughs> stop, I talking. Did, I, stop talking. I did, I did it exactly this morning. I, I trained 50 sales, 50 salespeople this morning. I said to them, I said, listen, when you ask for the order, you shut up. You don't say anything else. You let them talk next. Yeah. It's like that expression. Whoever speaks next loses in sales. <laughs> now, it shouldn't be about losing. Obviously, the win-win. But my point is, and your point is exactly right. Selling past the close, that's, that's not where you want to be. No. Oh. And I mean, from a leverage point of view, of course, you want to leverage that content. And there needs to be some level of mystery, I think, in, in when you're speaking, that, that you do want them to uh, take the next step, whatever call to action that might be. Yeah. Yeah. And then you need, that's really important. But I think from, from a branding point of view on stage, obviously, you can be very well branded. Uh, people put flyers in every seat or a promo product or whatever they might do. I mean, it is a great opportunity. And, and just as we come back to the virtual, like if you look at the virtual platforms, and I know I've been one to be very critical about it, but one thing that's, that strikes me is where virtual needs to really do is, is, is get the right speakers. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about virtual now because I mean, yeah. this is, I'm interested to hear what you think. Okay, what are the, what are the immediate challenges in the short term? Yep. And are we going to return to normal or what is the new normal going to look like over the yeah. next, I don't know, three years? I suppose where, where if I could look at the critical side of virtual, in my opinion, um, I, I believe, and I've said this time and time again, that the, the virtual suppliers in this world who are coming out of the woodwork at this stage, you know, there must be 25 new suppliers in the last two weeks, are people who do not understand our industry, they've never been in the exhibition industry, and they're on a revenue grab. They're brilliant tech people, don't get me wrong, and they can create these wonderful, great platforms, but they're missing the face-to-face personal engagement piece. You can talk about chat boxes, you can talk about uh, inter-audience engagement online. It's not the same as in real life. So I think It's not the same. No, it's not. And, and I think, to be fair, I think what the way I would always describe it is, if you take virtual, as it is right now, as the door opener... I think we should be using virtual right now as a way of introducing buyers to each other or suppliers to each other or whatever way, buyers to suppliers, and getting them engaged in conversations. So when they do go back to the live piece, which they will, they'll have already crossed that Rubicon. They'll already know each other or they'll have already broken the ice. And that's going to speed things up. But I think the fear is, for me, Richard, that is, there's all this talk about virtual. And you and I both know that everyone wants everything for online for free. So it's going to be very, very difficult to monetize virtual exhibitions specifically. Now, what you're going to do, I think, is by hosting a virtual exhibition, you're plugging the gap. But I think you're potentially damaging the brand. Because if that virtual event doesn't go well, and they don't get the return that they want, then the exhibitor is going to be a, a real struggle to get them back to the live event. And let's face it, live events, even today, as we speak, are opening as we speak. Um, and they're starting to open all across the world. So I think the virtual bubble in exhibition terms is going to burst because I think it's too many people there. We looked at it, right, as a technology platform as yeah. well and we saw a lot of people jumping into it. Going, oh, we'll just do everything online. Um, 
and I started attending all these virtual events and they were all rubbish. <laughs> they were yeah. all pretty boring and, and low yeah. quality and just not the same value proposition at all. Yeah, see, that's not, I mean, people say to me, so, well, you know, virtual is cheaper as an exhibit from an exhibitor point of view. I said, yeah, but like, you know, half your money you spend advertising is a waste of time. You just don't know which half. Yes, yes, exactly. And in, in, in virtual terms, we're, we're looking at it and going, yeah, we can go, we can go virtually. We can, we can take a stand for a thousand euro as opposed to 10,000 euro. But is it going to be more than 10% better? You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, is it worth it? I just don't see it. I see virtual on the hybrid versions that they're talking about as a good option in terms of, yes, there are ways of working together. But I just don't think we've found them exactly yet. No, we haven't. No, I just don't think so. I mean, the way I've always described virtual and live is, um, and I've 25 years, I've seen loads of virtual events come and go. But what we've always done in our industry is the exhibitions and digital stroke virtual are traveling in the same direction, but on different roads. And what's happening is um, virtual now have to bounce on exhibitions because of COVID and are saying, well, we're better than you now and everyone should do virtual. That's just not true. What we need to do is we need get to get to the crossroads where we, we now become on the same, we go on the same road together. I'd have to agree, right? I, I feel we're going to get to the place where just naturally every event has a virtual aspect because you want to include yeah. people who couldn't be there in person. Absolutely. And it's just a, it's it's just going to become a natural requirement. And rightly so, Richard, because there are a lot of pros with virtual. If I live in, in Tokyo and I want to go to an exhibition in London that's virtual, I don't need to get in an airplane. Like So potentially there's a bigger audience. But I just think we have to be really careful that we don't oversell the virtual opportunity as being a replacement for life because it's not. No, and this goes back to the point you made at the start of this discussion, which is Virtual is really about the content hmm. and live in-person events are, is, is really about the networking because you just can't have the same networking experience in virtual. It just, it just does not work that way. You can, you know, it's, and then you're, you're so right in what you're saying. And there's no reason why they can't coexist, but I, or cohabit, or whichever way you want to describe it. But like, you know, there's got to be a logic to it because for me, being somebody who's very passionate about our industry, it's about the visitor experience. I always say this to, to um, salespeople who sell exhibitions. So it's not about the guy who's giving you the money. Of course, that's really important. If the visitor is happy, everyone else is happy. Because the, if the visitor comes and gets the guest he wants, the exhibitor is happy, then the owner is happy. And that's what we, we've traditionally focused on the person who's given us the money. And the, I, I understand why, by the way, which is the exhibitor. But really what we need to be doing is we need to be focusing on the visitor experience. What does the visitor want? Because once you satisfy and tick that box, the exhibitor doesn't really care. I mean, I've been on exhibitions where they look rubbish, the, the shows, the stands on don't look great, and la la la, and the catering's crap. But the visitors have been brilliant. And the exhibitors don't care about all the other stuff. They care about the visitors. That's what if they're getting the right visitors, they couldn't care less whether the, the exhibition all is, is falling down all around them. It's more about visitors. Yeah, and that is so true. And I, I mean, ultimately, what you as an organizer are selling to the exhibitors is <laughs> are your attendees and, and their happiness. It is. And it's about, it's like you said earlier on, you're right. It's about content. So if you take your speakers, like the speakers are, like I said, I've said this a few times, but I believe the speakers are going to become increasingly important at events. I really do. I believe that content is king as a real cliche expression, but I think that's going to come out of the other side of, of, of this is because if you do any surveys with people who go to exhibitions, they're not going because they want to see 40 square meter stands or they want to see 
the newest stand. That's that's a byproduct of what we do. They're going because they want to get CPD points, accreditation, or whatever it is, or see certain content. Yeah. So I mean, is this ultimately good news for people who make a living from speaking? Right. Because there's different types of speakers, right? There's people who are just dipping their toes in the water or sent by their boss. There's people who do it, but their company is paying for everything, so it doesn't really matter. And then there's professional speakers who make a living from it. No, I do think it's good for speakers, but I think it's 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 an opportunity for good speakers to shine. And I think it's it's like the example people always say uh, they talk about again social media and LinkedIn in particular. That if you're giving out all this content for free, you get it back. If you are a speaker at an exhibition and you deliver a great presentation, that's not selling not selling your company and not not being overtly salesy focused. You get that back the other side because people go, I got that value from Richard from his talk. That was brilliant. I'm far far more likely to remember him, go to him in the future, go to him this afternoon, whatever it might be, than the guy who's who's a professional speaker, very slick, has all the lines. That is not theoretical, right? That that has happened to me, right? That's Mm -hmm. I've I've had success in business from exactly that dynamic. Yeah, it's people by people, and I mean, it's it's the the day of the, the hard sell. Whether that ever existed, the day of the hard sell is gone. It's now people and clients want value now. They're looking for that value. And it's like I, that video I want to do tomorrow. It's all about value for like the sales guy right now in any industry, tech industry or any industry who goes out trying to flog product at people is on a loser. Because the reality is, Richard, uh, and this is just, just the facts as they are, there's going to be less money in the economy. And I don't want to be negative about it, but it's just realistic. Less money in the economy. People are going to be more wary who to do business with. And the guys who, who, who have been empathetic with their clients, have worked with their clients over COVID period, who haven't forced sales through, who are looking after their best interests, they're the guys who are going to come out winners of at the end of this. Stephen, lots, lots to think about. By the time this goes out, of course, uh, <laughs> those videos and stuff that you're talking about will be in the past, but we'll put in a bunch of links. Uh, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much. Uh, listen, I hope it was, I hope it was of help. Um, I'm, I, you, know me, you know me, Richard. I like to talk, and I could talk exhibitions um, for many, 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 many hours. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephen. No worries, Richard. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com who help make this podcast possible till next time remember take a deep breath pause and step forward <laughs>